Thank you very much for the introduction. I'm really glad to be here, and thank you all for coming. This is from a book that I'm, I'm working on, The Global History of the Civil War. And before I begin talking, I just want to talk a little bit about what that might mean to be to write a global history of the Civil War. Because there's a lot of possible, there's not one history of the Civil War, and there's certainly not just one global history of the Civil War. So what could a global history of the Civil War be? One possibility that other historians have done, is, and an important one, is a diplomatic history of the Civil War with Union and Confederate diplomats juggling especially to try to get uh, European support, either financial or diplomatic recognition or so forth. And that's certainly one important type of international history. Don Doyle wrote a book called The Cause of All Nations. It's a really good recent book on that particular topic. Um, their international perceptions of the war is another way, you can, another international way. An economic history of the Civil War, looking especially at the global cotton economy, is another way to do an international history of the Civil War. There's comparative history of the Civil War, so it's looking less at the connections of various nations to the United States during the Civil War, but looking at the U.S. Civil War as a type of event. People might compare it to wars of nation building. The Austro-Prussian War of 1866 is a very fruitful case, but you could also look at the Taiping Rebellion in China of 1850 to 64, that was a civil war that was far more destructive and deadly than the U.S. Civil War, but was part of a similar era. I'm not doing any of that, although I think it's all important and interesting. I'm interested in particularly the U.S. Civil War as part of international, I call them plebeian revolutions, revolutions carried out by ordinary working people, black people and white people, enslaved people and free people, and to look at that dimension of the Civil War as an international revolution to see that component of it. So I'm especially interested in the Civil War as one of a series of revolutions of enslaved people against slavery. The revolution in Haiti is the most important and biggest of these revolutions, but there were many other revolutions, both successful and not immediately successful in the same way. And I'm also interested in the Civil War in relationship to uh, revolutions of European and European-American uh, working people, uh, especially the 1848-49 uh, revolutions. Um, and these are directly both, obviously, revolutions of enslaved people are directly relevant to the Civil War in an obvious way, but so were the 1848-49 revolutions in Europe to the Civil War. I'll be talking more about that today. A global history of the American Civil War is strange, I hope, in a good way, because the Civil War is such a defining moment in the history of the United States, of this nation. So to take an international perspective, to look at this national event as an international event, is an interesting paradox, maybe? I hope so. And I think it forces us to reflect on national history in a different way. What I do is I separate out what I think of as a national war over the integrity of the Union, whether the United States would continue or not, a national war about the Union, and an international revolution against slavery. And to try to see how those two things, obviously they're not separate, they interact in very important ways during the U.S. Civil War. One of the things that I'll be talking about in just a minute you know, one of the ways we often think of the international is that the international is what begins at the edges of nations, that you go to the Atlantic seaboard or to borders, and that's where the international is. But when you look at where do international revolutions happen in the U.S. 
in the years 1861 to 65, and really even longer. It's really right in the middle, in the Mississippi River Valley. They happen other places too, but my research has taken me to places like Helena, Arkansas, Boonville, Missouri, which we'll be talking about in just a second, places that are often dismissed as the flyover zone, and I think very incorrectly by parochial East Coasters and West Coasters too. And I think one of the things I want to do is not just in that physical geography sense of finding the international in the middle of the nation, but also in a more conceptual way to find the international not at the edges of the Civil War, not the same Civil War we already sort of understand, and seeing how it connects as a kind of module in a larger international mosaic, but to see how the international is at the heart of the Civil War in a lot of different ways, but also just geographically looking at the West. One of the things I'm going to do today, and I think it'll be maybe it'll be obvious once I start, is it's a different conception of war that I have, of the Civil War and of war in general. Because I'm looking at revolutions in the war, it's different from the way most military historians look at the war, um, and certainly the way, different from the way that most of the military, the top military leadership in the Union looked at the war too. The conventional way that people like McClellan, for example, like Henry Halleck, the top Union commanders looked at the war was looking at it through as they had learned and in the cases of, of Halleck and McClellan as they'd helped teach at West Point, which was a concept of war by the theorist Jomini from Europe. They agreed that the wars of the French Revolution would be the paradigmatic war, but Jomini's wars of the French Revolution were the wars of the French Revolution without the French Revolution. That is, war was supposed to be a technical affair, an affair that was decided in decisive battles, and that everything else surrounding that was politics and separate from the war. And that's one conception of war, and it's one that was very important for understanding the way in the early years of the war, Lincoln and the top generals, um, including people like McClellan and, and especially Halleck, who I'll be talking about, the way they conceived of the war. And I think a lot of military historians continue to conceive of the war that way, and it's important to conceive of it that way. That's the way a lot of the generals conceived it. But I'm looking at another section of military thought. These are people who would have been much closer to the military theorist Karl von Clausewitz, who thought that every aspect of war was political. You couldn't have the military part and then the political surrounding it. Everything was political. For Clausewitz, even though he didn't like the French Revolution very much, the idea of a revolution overthrowing aristocracy, overthrowing social inequalities, was essential for understanding how the French were winning in the, uh, in the wars of the French Revolution. And that kind of strategy was also very important for understanding the aspects of the Civil War that I'm going to be talking about today. So one of the things to think about as I'm talking about various revolutionary movements is I'm not talking very much about big battles, about the big decisive battles that many people will be familiar with. I'm arguing it's not only a side drama in the Civil War, but it's actually a different kind of war, a war that's not based on decisive battle, but a war that's based on ideological and social struggle. Maybe it's more like the wars of the 20th century, maybe, and less like the wars of the 19th century. But in any case, as I think I'm expecting, will not seem like military history. And one of the points I want to make is it is, and that's because we should be thinking about military history, not just in a broader way, but maybe in a slightly different way. So without further ado, let me get started. Has anybody here heard of either the first or the second Battle of Boonville? All right. Here is one way to begin a global history of the American Civil War. On the fairgrounds in Boonville, Missouri, 
on September 13, 1861, an enslaved man freed himself by shooting and killing his slaveholder, the Confederate general, Colonel William B. Brown. And you can see on the, the map there where Boonville is, that's a photograph that I took of the fairground today. As you can see, it's no longer a fairground, but that's, that's where it was. The U.S. Civil War had begun five months earlier in April. Missouri was one of four slave states that remained in the Union. In the first years of the war, the Lincoln administration insisted that it fought only to preserve the Union and had no intention of interfering with slavery where it already existed. I believe Lincoln was earnest about that. In Missouri, slavery thus remained legal and supported by the federal government through most of the war. But the most militant supporters of the Union in Missouri were those German immigrants who derived their political orientation not from their new country of residence, but from the revolutionary doctrines many had brought from Europe. They opposed slavery, even if their leaders in Washington did not seem to, because it represented the ultimate despotism of private property over people. Many had been fighting this despotism for decades, beginning in socialist and communist organizations in Europe. When the Missouri state governor had tried to bring the state into the Confederacy, it was mostly anti-slavery German immigrant soldiers that had prevented him from doing so. German immigrants, or Dutch as they were often called, made up four of the five volunteer regiments mustered into Union service in St. Louis when the war broke out. Driven from St. Louis, the governor and his troops fled to the more secessionist slaveholding region along the Missouri River, known to this day as Little Dixie. The governor made a stand in Boonville, a wealthy city in the region, where he could hope to recruit soldiers and restore his authority in the state. The local Boonville paper boasted, and I'm quoting from the local Boonville paper, we can oust the Germans from St. Louis, plant our cannon on the banks of the Missouri River, and defy thousands of hireling, pilfering Dutch. If in the East, the kind of the Confederate image of the Union soldier was the Yankee, there was some of that in the West too, but even more it was the Dutch or the Germans. Instead, a few days later, the mostly German troops ousted the slaveholders' army from Boonville. Before decamping to pursue the Sessionist enemy, the Union army formed up two companies of home guards, local militiamen, all German, to defend Boonville. They occupied an earthenwork fortification built that summer on the local fairground. This was the fairground on which the enslaved man would kill his slaveholder. He had learned that the slaveholder had assembled a force of 600 secessionists to retake Boonville, and he ran to warn the badly outnumbered home guards. He fled at great risk to himself and also to those he left behind, two women and five children. What additional abuses would they suffer at the hands of the slaveholder whose secrets he was betraying? When the fugitive arrived in Boonville with news of the impending attacks, the German-American home guards not only welcomed him, but also provided him with a uniform and a rifle. They did the same for at least two other self-emancipated former slaves. The Union Army, as I'm sure you all know, permitted no such thing in the first years of the war. When the secessionists finally attacked, the fugitive from slavery recognized his slaveholder leading the charge and shot him dead. Having lost their commander, the slaveholder's army quit the field, and secessionists lost any immediate hope of retaking the stronghold on the Missouri River. The news that a man had killed his slaveholder and that Union troops had protected him from retaliation spread quickly and emboldened other enslaved people in the area. A local slaveholder who demanded the return of his human chattel, his human property, from the Union garrison was, according to one complaint, quote, assailed with clubs and stones until he was compelled to flee for personal safety, end quote. It is no wonder that the black marksman who had just killed his owner, freed himself, and helped defeat slavery in one of its northernmost strongholds was, in the words of an Iowa private who arrived shortly after the battle, 
and I quote, tickled almost to death. How different the war on this side of the Mississippi River was from the bloody stalemate then commencing in Virginia. Union hopes for a quick drive to the Confederate capital at Richmond had been dashed that July at the Battle of Bull Run, sending Union soldiers in a wild retreat, jumbled with fleeing civilians who had made a picnic of the day to marvel at what they hoped would be the first and last battle of the war. As with so many of the best-remembered Civil War battles, however, the defending army at Bull Run, the Confederacy, repelled the attackers but could not take advantage of the tactical victory to capture or kill the retreating army. Each side suffered comparable losses and no territory changed hands. All quiet along the Potomac, wrote the poet Ethel Lynn Beers later that year, bitterly juxtaposing in Virginia, the stalemate in Virginia to the daily tragedy of soldiers killed in this war of attrition. I'm just reading from that, that quote up there. A private or two now and then will not count in the news of the battle, not an officer lost, only one of the men moaning out all alone the death rattle. And this became a, a song that soldiers sang later in the war. The title, of course, would reappear in the English translation of the great novel of the First World War, All Quiet on the Western Front, again focusing on the bloody waste of a deadlocked war. A glance at a map depicting the advancing Union front reveals one of the central, though less often recognized, features of the American Civil War. And that map there, which I just downloaded from Wikipedia, it just shows the different shaded areas, shows the, the Union front lines in each year of the war. In the East, where most of the best commemorated Civil War battles occurred, almost no territory changed hands during the conflict. Meanwhile, in the West, the Union advanced rapidly and steadily down the Mississippi River Valley from almost the beginning of the war. Historians have offered a variety of explanations for this disparity between East and West. And there are a lot of good arguments, and I'm not going to go over all of them now, but I'm not intending to negate those arguments, but to add my own argument to it also. In my view, what made the Western theater so much more successful for the Union was that in the Mississippi River Valley, between St. Louis and New Orleans, was the most intensely transnational space in the United States at the time, where revolutionary traditions from Africa, Europe, and across the Americas collaborated to create powerful new forms of politics, work, and warfare. When the war began, the most prominent West Pointers on both sides took commands in the East, leaving open a space in the West for these plebeian internationals to carry out a revolution against slaveholding society. In Missouri, the name of the game was revolution, not war. The soldiers and ex-slave at Boonville jubilated in a victory won illegally, according to Union authorities. At that time, the Union not only prohibited African Americans from bearing arms, but also loudly proclaimed its support for slavery in states, including Missouri, where slavery already existed. Yet it was revolution that leapt from victory to victory, first winning Missouri for the Union, then moving down the Mississippi River, across Tennessee and Georgia, and up the coast, across the Carolinas to Virginia, finally marching victorious into the Confederate capital of Richmond. It was a revolution that threatened military chains of command and upended social hierarchies of race and of property. For that reason, it was also a revolution that the Union leadership could scarce tolerate. Only in the last year of the war did the Union Army, still grumbling, finally allow the two greatest generals of the war, Ulysses S. Grant and William T. Sherman, my opinion, to lead the fight as they had learned to do out west, beginning in Missouri. The style of warfare that originated in Missouri was not some clever stratagem by the Union leadership, even by Grant and Sherman. Indeed, a few months after the Battle of Boonville, the top Union commander in the theater, that was Henry Wager Halleck, he would later be promoted to general-in-chief, had the soldiers in Boonville, quote, forcibly disarmed, declaring them, quote, a very dangerous element in society as well as in the army. 
At the beginning of the war, the leadership of the Union Army openly declared its commitment to preserving slavery in states where it already existed, whether they had joined the Confederacy or, like Missouri, remained in the Union. One Missouri colonel even allowed slaveholders to place their human property in his camp for, in his words, safekeeping. President Abraham Lincoln had reaffirmed this commitment to preserving slavery less than two weeks before the Battle of Boonville when he dismissed the top Union commander in Missouri, John C. Fremont, for issuing a statewide emancipation proclamation. And since I'm talking to, to an audience that I think knows Civil War military history, like few audiences that I talk to, one of the things I'm doing kind of in the insider game is rehabilitating, in a sense, generals that are often seen as incompetents, including Fremont, but also Franz Ziegel and other less well-known known ones, too. And not entirely, I mean, but as Congress and the Supreme Court had reaffirmed again and again, most infamously in the 1857 Dred Scott decision, there was no national legal basis for ending slavery in the United States. There was even less legal basis for the kind of armed self-emancipation that occurred in Boonville and in countless other actions, some documented, others that can only be guessed at. The Missouri style of warfare was an invention of ordinary working people, black and white, enslaved and free. It was not, however, simply a spontaneous reaction of these working people to the obvious atrocity of slavery. Rather, there were powerful international, intellectual, and political traditions that informed the revolution against slavery that occurred within the U.S. Civil War. Especially significant, I'm arguing, were African-American conjure and German-American communism, and they crossed in powerful and fateful ways, first in Missouri. The generals and politicians on both sides fought a civil war in the United States that lasted from 1861 to 1865. Conjurers and communists and the many they influenced fought a civil war with a far greater range in space and time, and indeed wholly different conceptions of time and space than that of the national representative democracy that formed a common political core of the Union and the Confederacy. So in the remainder of the talk, I want to take what we could think of as a radical trip down the Mississippi River. And first, in the next section, I'll talk about conjure and communism in Missouri um, in 1861, then look at labor and property in Helena, Arkansas, socialism and slavery on the Davis Bend, and then if I have time, talk about a little bit about the end of the war. So first, Guinea Sam Nightingale and the origins of the Civil War. I'm going to talk about African-American conjure now. The September Battle of Boonville is one way to begin a global history of the American Civil War. Here is another also in Boonville, Missouri. This global history begins with a cannon shot, but one earlier and perhaps more powerful than the ones fired by Confederate artillery on the Federal Fort Sumter in South Carolina in April 1861. This cannon shot boomed in West Africa in 1856, sending Guinea Sam Nightingale streaking across the Atlantic Ocean, landing directly in Boonville, Missouri. There's two routes of Guinea Sam on the map. I'm talking about the first indirect one. Upon arriving in what was then the major city of the primary region of slavery in the region, this human cannonball declared, and I quote, I'm a conjure man, and I'm telling you right now that I've come here to stay, and there's a new day coming for this town. Nightingale became a widely respected healer and conjurer in central Missouri. Lucy Broadus, who had grown up in slavery in the area, would later claim that Nightingale and other heady persons, as individuals with powers like him were sometimes called, had been more important than the Union leadership in ending slavery. And I'm reading the, the quote up there. It was them, she explained, that freed the slaves. They give a hand to Lincoln and them other big emancipator men so they could bring it about a gift from the colored people of conjuration and power. 
And if you know anything about conjure, you know that she's making a pun with the term hand, which is an object of conjure. But if you don't, don't worry about that. That's just inside conjure stuff. Conjurers like Nightingale lived and worked in slave communities across North America, as did their counterparts elsewhere in the Americas, practitioners of voodoo in Haiti, Obia in Jamaica, Santeria in Cuba, and Candomblé in Brazil. African-born intellectuals like Guinea Sam Nightingale constituted a minuscule proportion of the enslaved population in the United States in the 1850s, but they were important intellectuals, healers, workers of magic, and political thinkers in slave communities. They helped enslaved people survive, resist, and sometimes, as Lucy Brada suggested, even overthrow slavery. I've also reconstructed a second biography of Nightingale from the archives of slavery and of slaveholders. This has him illegally slaved from the Rio Pongo in Guinea, West Africa, and smuggled into Spanish Florida. The internal slave trade took him from Georgia to Louisiana to Missouri. And there you can see that other route too. Um, I also wanted to point to one of the things when I'm dealing with slaves as important actors in the Civil War and as important revolutionary actors, I'm dealing with a very disparate archive. Enslaved people were prohibited from writing. There are far fewer sources, and their actions, and in particular their political actions, are often are less well documented, often because the very condition of carrying out those political actions was that they remained secret. So what I have there is the only image I have of Guinea Sam Nightingale, which is from the 1880 federal census, when he could be listed by name. Before that, enslaved people were just listed by their age and their sex and their skin tone was the, were the only three things. And anyway, that's an image of Guinea Sam Nightingale, but to me it also is an image that illustrates the disparity of the archives I'm dealing with. In thinking about these two biographies, the cannon shot and the slave trade, I follow an anthropologist named David Scott in rejecting what he calls a verificationist paradigm that would ask which of these, which of the two biographies is the true story. Nightingale and his community live with both of them. Conjure was a set of technologies. It was, for example, a technology of flight. Conjurers in coastal Georgia, where Nightingale was held as a slave for years, could fly through the air, sometimes all the way to freedom in Africa. Nightingale flew by cannon in the opposite direction. Conjure also facilitated more common types of flight from slavery, for example, by helping fugitives elude the vicious dogs that tracked, terrorized, and sometimes mauled or killed them. Through such flights, individuals emancipated themselves and also during the Civil War, and even before, forced the U.S. government to address the question of slavery. Conjure was also a technology of fighting. Certain routes could render an individual immune to blows inflicted by white people. Frederick Douglass's famous victory in a fight with an especially brutal slaveholder was facilitated by such a route. Conjurers could provide a drink of gunpowder mixed with coffee to give enslaved people courage to stand up in rebellion against a better armed adversary. Nightingale was also a practitioner of gunpowder magic, as his cannon shot indicates. Conjure like communism and other forms of radical plebeian politics, combined its healing and political practices with a theory of history, of geography, of time, and of social change. And one of the things that's important for me in thinking about an international history of the Civil War is to think not only of these international traditions and how they motivated people, like African-American slaves rebelling against slavery, and as I'll talk about soon, German-American communists, but the way they involved a conception of time and space that's very different from the idea of a nation that makes gradual progress, which was definitely the model of Abraham Lincoln, and he expresses it very eloquently. And this is a, a different model of the most fundamental categories of history and geography. In Conjure, 
Africa was not only a place from which enslaved people or their ancestors had been taken from in the past, it was also a source of power in the present. This is especially important in Haitian voodoo, it used to be spelled voodoo, but it's just voodoo is the way they spell it in Haiti, which Nightingale would have encountered among immigrants from the island when he lived in southern Louisiana. The power of Africa in Conjure rests on a concept of space and time that makes the absent available in the present, not closed off in a distant past. It is a model of history based on breaks, proximities, repetitions, and explosions, rather than on gradual linear progress that leaves our past ever more distant and our future always just out of reach. The archives offer only hints in Nightingale's relationship to the Battle of Boonville. He was a well-known figure in town, and it is unlikely that any resident would have been unaware of the battle. The German home guards, moreover, took Nightingale's slaveholder hostage once they learned of the impending secessionist attack. The fugitive who sounded the alarm might well have used Conjure himself, perhaps to help himself escape, or when the battle started, to protect himself from bullets fired by whites, or to give himself courage for the fighting. All of these were widespread and important Conjure practices in Missouri. Now, Civil War communism. We also do not know a great deal about the political thought and practice of the German home guards at Boonville. Although the fact that they gave guns to fugitives from slavery perhaps tells us more than any political manifesto would have. The archives record a number of instances when German soldiers armed fugitives from slavery, and I thus infer that this happened more regularly than even than the archives tell us. One in ten Union soldiers had been born in the German states, so that doesn't include the children or grandchildren of people born in Germany, but they, these were people who were, whose birthplace was somewhere in Germany. This simply reflects U.S. demographics as you would expect, just based on the demographics of the U.S., about that figure. But some German immigrants brought dissident political traditions whose strength came from their incompatibility with the political traditions of the United States. Some of the Germans who fought in the U.S. Civil War were fleeing political repression after the defeat of the revolutions that took place in Europe in 1848-49. A small but significant portion were communists, some with a capital C that is members of the Communist Organization, the Communist League, the organization for which Marx and Engels had wrote their famous manifesto. And a far greater number were communists with a small c, that is just by inclination, not necessarily members of any organization, with their own politics assembled from a variety of doctrines and a more general sense that concentrations of private property were a bitter enemy of democracy. Several capital C communists became important Union generals. These included August Willich, who helped save the day at the Battle of Shiloh on the second day, and the controversial but much-loved Franz Ziegel. Private notebooks written around the time that Ziegel arrived in the U.S. reveal his interest in developing, and these are all quotes from his notebooks, a system of war that would allow soldiers and communists to work together to overthrow capitalists in the name of the proletariat. Communists, with a big or a small c, generally did not regard the United States as an exemplar of democracy. As Carl Schurz, or Schurz as he would have said at the time, a small c communist who would later make a career as a prominent Republican, wrote shortly after arriving in the U.S. in 1852, and I quote from Schurz, here is a party that calls itself democratic and is at the same time the main supporter of the institution of slavery. There another party thunders against slavery, but rests all its arguments on the authority of the Bible, mentally debasing itself to an unbelievable degree." End quote. For these radicals, the U.S. was simply a good place to escape European police and stockpile weapons for the next revolution. And I can't resist sharing my favorite archival find. 
it was in Budapest, and I just on a lark went to the National Archives there, where there were the papers of a Hungarian general, Alexander Ashbod, if people know that, who fought in the Civil War. And I found the image there in the corner there is a, a receipt for percussion caps that he bought together with Franz Ziegel in New York in, I believe it's 1852. And they were presumably not for to fight in the U.S., but to ship them back to Europe. So while they were interested in returning to Europe to fight and not interested in the U.S., they were soon drawn into the struggle against slavery in the United States, especially as economic circumstances forced many to leave New York City and move out west, above all to places like St. Louis and Cincinnati, which were right, in St. Louis's case, in a slave state, and Cincinnati right on the front lines of slavery, the very important radical African-American community in Cincinnati. But communist 1848ers did not bring ready-made lessons or models to the Civil War. Their revolution had been a failure after all, and the politics and philosophy of the Communist Manifesto was partly responsible for that failure. The Manifesto had urged communists to cease fighting bourgeois rule and instead to accept capitalism as a necessary stage on the road from feudalism to socialism. Many communists in 1848 rejected this stage's gradualism despite the urgings of Marx and Engels. And indeed, in 1848, the bourgeoisie hardly acted like the inherently progressive revolutionary class depicted in the Communist Manifesto. That's not something that many people recognize about the Communist Manifesto, but it's really a kind of a celebration of the bourgeoisie as the great progressive class of the time. The most extreme example occurred in Paris in June of 1848, when a Republican French government, founded only months before in a revolution, massacred thousands of workers to suppress a second socialist revolution. After the defeat of the revolution, Marx and Engels, like many of their comrades, concluded that gradualism and collaboration with the bourgeoisie was, at minimum, strategically dangerous. When the Civil War broke out, many would recognize in Lincoln's moderate position on ending slavery the fatal gradualism of 1848-49. And they certainly weren't the only ones, also a lot of northern radical opinion did too. The Germans who fled to the United States after the 48-49 revolutions were as politically diverse as any other ethnic group. But there were a number of influential radical communities across the country. Hoboken, New Jersey became an important conduit between German communism and African-American abolitionism, thanks especially to Frederick Douglass's personal and political friendship with the German immigrant Ottilie Assing. The Hoboken scene likely inspired Douglass's 1859 quote, a German has only to be a German to be utterly opposed to slavery, end quote. And that's not true if you look at the range of German-American opinion at the time, but if you were in Hoboken, especially hanging out with the people that Douglas and Ossing were, that would be an impression that you might get. St. Louis was perhaps the most important radical scene for the Civil War. Articles published in the St. Louis German newspaper, Anzeiger des Westens, which I don't know exactly how you translate it, but it's newspaper of the West, in the first months of the Civil War, reveal both the possibilities and limitations of this communist anti-slavery. The newspaper was run by Heinrich Bernstein, or Henry Bernstein as he was going by then, an associate of Karl Marx from Paris, who commanded a Missouri infantry regiment in the first months of the war. The paper encouraged its readers to think of themselves not so much as defenders of the Union as in revolt against, quote, the arrogance of capital and of the aristocracy, regardless of whether we call it an aristocracy of birth or of money, end quote. But this revolt, the paper explained, would need to work in conjunction with an African-American revolution against slavery. This would only occur if the federal government guaranteed that the self-emancipated would enjoy the, quote, fruits of the rebellion, namely a dignified human existence and personal emancipation, end quote, as well as voting and other political rights. Enslaved people, the paper explained, had been, quote, left in the lurch too often before, even by those opposed in principle to slavery. 
But the anti-slavery politics of German Civil War communism also had limits. The paper, again, still talking about that same St. Louis German paper, assured its German readers that a slave uprising in the U.S. would not have the, quote, ghastly character of the Haitian Revolution because African Americans in the United States were not the, quote, half-savage blacks imported from Africa only a few years before, end quote. Obviously, the understanding of Africa central to conjure was not shared by the communists who wrote this. Quite the opposite. This disparaging view of Africa likely limited, but it did not prevent solidarity between German Americans and African Americans during the war. Karl Marx followed the war, Civil War closely, and it transformed his understanding of capitalism and of revolution. His understanding of capitalism and revolution also contributed in a small way to the revolutionary style of warfare that emerged in Missouri and traveled down the Mississippi River. All right. We to move down the river to Helena, Arkansas, right on the Mississippi River. Has anybody here ever been to Helena before? Excellent. Good. After defeating secessionists, or more or less defeating secessionists in Missouri, Union troops moved south into Arkansas. Many Missouri soldiers had hoped that they would be commanded by Franz Ziegel, the communist general whom I quoted earlier. When they learned Ziegel would not be their top commander, they threatened mutiny, as they had when Lincoln dismissed Fremont. But they were mollified when they learned they would instead be commanded by the Iowa Republican Samuel R. Curtis. Curtis was a native-born radical, opposed by conservatives in his ranks, but well-liked by foreign-born and African-American radicals, including the editors of the New Orleans Black Press. In spring 18, of 1862, Curtis led his army across the Missouri border into Arkansas. It's a complicated route, as you probably know. Some of you probably know, but I'm just think of it as just straight into Arkansas. If they reached the banks of the Mississippi River, they could by then count on support from Union gun and supply boats. This was because J.W. Bissell, a native-born Union engineer, had completed a six-mile-long, 50-foot-wide canal that allowed Union boats to circumvent Confederate defenses at Island Number 10 off of New Madrid, Missouri. So basically allows them to access the Mississippi River south of Missouri. Like all of the major engineering works that Bissell would carry out for the Union, this one depended on the labors of hundreds of African-American workers and, just as importantly, African-American scouts and spies. Engineers were sometimes called pioneers, and this was because they were often out in front of other troops preparing entrenchments for them before they arrived. Engineers needed intelligence and support from slaves. Bissell knew from pre-war discussions with African-American activists in St. Louis that to recruit black allies, he would have to demonstrate his own political commitment to overthrowing slavery. This he did, among other ways, by having his soldiers shoot some of the ferocious bloodhounds that slaveholders used to terrorize slaves and capture runaways. Sherman's army, in which Bissell's engineers would later serve, would also do the same. The new Madrid Canal thus dug, Union boats could move south on the river. On land under Curtis and on the water under Bissell, or thanks to Bissell, troops moved south from Missouri into Arkansas, out of one of the pre-war centers of black and white anti-slavery, and into the heart of slave country. Enslaved people followed the war closely, and in Arkansas, they fled to Curtis's troops, treating them as a liberating army. Like many of the troops he commanded, Curtis displayed little concern for the legalities of slavery or the official Union policy that dictated that secession, not slavery, was the object of the war. He issued what were called free papers, documents establishing the freedom of formerly enslaved individuals at a pace so great that he requisitioned printing presses to keep up. Soon as they had done in Missouri, these federal troops also began providing arms to slaves so that they might secure their own freedom. 
All of this provoked great opposition from Halleck and other Union conservatives, but it also facilitated the movement of Curtis's army through Confederate territory, pushing the Western Army south, even while the stalemate in the East entered its second year. In July of 1862, Curtis's troops reached the Mississippi River after a brutal march across Arkansas, occupying the important port town of Helena. The majority of the population around Helena had been enslaved before the war, and they were soon joined by fugitives from slavery from all over Arkansas, and in fact also from across the river in Mississippi too. And they settled around the Union stronghold there. I do not have documentation of the role of specific conjurers in Arkansas as I do for Missouri. Still, it is clear that conjure was as important as a technology of flight and a political strategy in Arkansas as it was elsewhere in the United States. And I know this from interviews done by the Works Progress Administration in the 1930s with formerly enslaved people. In the academic world, a lot of historians talk about the social history of the war versus the military history of the war. And typically, this kind of thing would be, well, this is the social history of the war, not the military history of the war. But one of the things I want to insist on here is that this is the military history of the war. This is how the Union Army took Confederate territory. And if armies taking Confederate territory is military history, then this is military history. And it's also social history, too. New forms of non-capitalist economic freedom emerged around Helena that were as strategically effective as they were challenging to Union conservatives. Union authorities hoped to profit from the production of cotton and other valuable plantation commodities that had previously enriched the Confederacy. What types of labor would produce these commodities became perhaps the central political and economic question of the war. Fleeing Confederates had left behind much cotton in the area around Helena, which slaves brought in for sale. Union authorities above Curtis wanted him to pay former slaves only what they might have earned in wages for growing the cotton, had they been paid wages, and not for the value of the cotton itself. Curtis, meanwhile, insisted on paying the value of the cotton they had produced, which was significantly higher than the wages they might have earned producing it for another person. This difference between the value of what workers produced and the lesser value that they were paid for their labor was fast becoming a contentious topic around the Atlantic world, not just in Helena, Arkansas, as capitalist relations have spread to many spheres of production. When Curtis chose to pay the workers for what they produced rather than only for their labor time, his decision might well have been informed by the economic views of the communists in his army, perhaps even Franz Siegel, who had been his second in command until April. Or not, I don't know. But certainly the German troops were very enthusiastic about this. Helena under Curtis in the summer of 1862 reveals one of the many unrealized possibilities for not just a different civil war, but a different United States. Does it make sense to include futures that never came to be in a historical account of the past? Does excluding possibilities from history simply because they never came to be, we now know in retrospect, not impose present knowledge on the past in a way our discipline, the discipline of history, expressly forbids? Cotton was a valuable commodity. Before the Civil War, slavery ensured that this value went to the owners of land and people rather than to those who produced it. Curtis briefly, momentarily, redirected this value to producers. The Union officials above Curtis, however, treated his economic practices as corruption. They had specific allegations, none of them substantiated in the end. As in so many cases of alleged political corruption, and economic corruption here, related to black freedom, what really struck white elites as corrupt was the very idea that black workers would enjoy the fruits of their own labor, rather than simply whatever portion white owners granted them in provisions or in wages. This, after all, really did violate what had become standard economic practices in the United States. In September of 1862, Curtis took command of the Department of the Missouri, moving his headquarters to St. Louis, so he got taken away from Helena. One of Curtis's conservative enemies, 
Frederick Steele, and his name is there, although pretty soon Curtis and his correspondents start spelling his last name S-T-E-A-L rather than S-T-E-E-L-E. One of Curtis's conservative enemies, Frederick Steele, took over command at Helena and began undoing the economic transformations Curtis had begun. Steele found a good ally in the Union military governor, or the person who was hoping to become military governor of Arkansas, John S. Phelps, the one who, as a colonel in Missouri, had allowed slaveholders to place their slaves in his camp for safekeeping. Steele not only reversed Curtis's policy of accepting fugitives from slavery, but also facilitated slaveholders recapturing their former slaves from within Union lines. He refused to purchase cotton from former slaves and also refused to pay wages to former slaves for work they carried out even on Union fortifications. Steele held that these former slaves were not former slaves, they were still the property of slaveholders, who therefore, the slaveholders were therefore entitled to their wages and he held them back. Curtis's practices had treated former slaves as free people and seen to it that they could work to support themselves. Steele's policy cut off former slaves from possibilities of earning their own keep, impoverishing them. Helena became a place of deadly disease and poverty for former slaves. For Steele, this poverty justified his own opposition to emancipation. The misery of former slaves, a result in part of Steele's own reversal of Curtis's policies, suggested that freedom hurt African Americans. The suffering also turned former slaves from self-supporting workers into objects of patronizing charity from northern philanthropists. All right, I'm, I think I have a talk for about five more minutes. So this, even though it seems like it's a new section, it's not one that's going to be as long as the other sections. Socialism and slavery on Davis Bend. By the end of the summer of 1862, the Union had taken most of the major Confederate strong points in the Mississippi River, including Island No. 10 in Missouri, Helena, Arkansas, Memphis, and New Orleans. The only re remaining major obstacle to free Union movement on the river was the massive fortifications at Vicksburg, Mississippi. The siege of Vicksburg that would unfold from May to July 1863 involved social and political questions about black freedom and the revolution against slavery, much as the action farther up the Mississippi had. In preparation for the massive campaign against Vicksburg, the Union Army transferred many of the regiments that had fought in Missouri and Arkansas into Ulysses S. Grant's Army of the Tennessee. Henry Halleck, because that seems like the villain of this story, the conservative officer who opposed the often illegal emancipatory efforts of these soldiers, had long hoped to, quote, reduce them to better discipline by transferring them to Grant's command. In fact, Grant's command would be, soon become an important conduit by which the revolutionary strategies that Halleck's tried to suppress came to shape official Union policy. Under Grant, revolution against slavery became not just a suppressed process in the Union war in Missouri and Arkansas, but a central component of the overall Union strategy. The Union army in Mississippi, like its counterparts across the river in Arkansas and Louisiana, attracted thousands of fugitives from slavery, hoping to secure their freedom under Grant's protection. At first, they encountered severe abuse at the hands of many white soldiers who insulted, beat, robbed, raped, and murdered them, often with impunity. This seems to have happened less in Missouri and Arkansas, but it was a constant danger for all African-American people seeking freedom. Laying siege to a fortress is as much a project of engineering as of combat. Union engineers dug connected concentric circles of entrenchments around Vicksburg to prevent enemy troops from escaping from inside or relieving it from outside. They also attempted to repeat the success in Missouri when they had dug a canal that allowed Union votes to circumvent Confederate fortifications on the Mississippi. In charge of many of these efforts was the engineer J.W. Bissell, who, we saw, had learned in Missouri to work with underground organizations of slaves to obtain their assistance with engineering projects. 
These self-emancipated slaves, whether digging trenches or canals or scouting roads for the Union, were not passive or apolitical or simply throwing their bodies into the Union war effort, but helping to direct the effort itself, above all through the knowledge and power they provided. Again, my research has not given me documentation of the role of conjure in African-American political action in Mississippi yet. I haven't done that much of that research yet. So its importance here remains a working hypothesis. Vicksburg finally fell to the Union Army, as many of you probably know, on July 4th, 1863. About 25 miles south of the conquered Confederate fortress lay the plantations of Confederate President Jefferson Davis and his brother Joseph, known as the Davis Bend Plantations. Joseph Davis was one of those slaveholders who wished to prove that slavery was a more modern and humane form of labor than wage labor was. He did this by incorporating certain forms of European socialism into his and Jefferson's plantations. This was not the revolutionary and democratic socialism of German and German-American communists, but the top-down managerial form advocated by the British reformer Robert Owen, pictured there. Joseph Davis, Jefferson Davis's brother, had met Robert Owen sometime before the war, while the British reformer was busy setting up a utopian community in New Harmony, Indiana. Following some of Owen's principles for organizing factories along cooperative lines, Davis gave slaves greater control over the management of the plantation. His hope was to make these workers more productive, not to emancipate them. When slaveholders fled the Davis Bend plantations, the former slaves continued to run the plantation as cooperatives, but now on their own account. They soon expanded their cooperative, dividing it into plots run by self-organized all-black companies that elected their own managers and divided the labor and profits among themselves. Grant had already been persuaded of the ability of African Americans to engage in combat, and Davis Bend convinced him of their ability to see to their own economic and political affairs. And one of the things, if I had more time, I would talk more about is the way you can see traces of this kind of revolutionary war also in Sherman's march across the South, and the way that what's often presented as total war or as indiscriminate destruction is actually quite specifically directed against slaveholding society. And it's not exactly this revolutionary form of combat, but it, I think informed by it, in large part because many of the regiments from Missouri that en then went into Helena went with Sherman on the Yazoo Pass expedition and then were part of the big march across the South. So just to conclude. The powerful international revolutionary movements of the 19th century Atlantic were not available to the Confederacy, and this must be counted among their many strategic deficits of those slave states. The Union, meanwhile, enjoyed enormous support in the South, above all from enslaved African Americans. But these African Americans fought a revolutionary war against slavery that was not the official Union war, at least in the first years of the conflict. I have tried to focus this evening on a different war, a transnational revolutionary war, and a different war powers those of conjure and of communism. This revolutionary warfare proved essential to the salvation of the Union, even as the federal government continued to regard it as a threat to hierarchies of race, private property, and political power also dear to northern elites, Frederick Steele undoing Curtis's reforms is a perfect example of that. Revolutionary victory was followed almost immediately by counter-revolutionary privatization. This is what W.E.B. Du Bois, in his great work, uh, Black Reconstruction, termed a, quote, counter-revolution of property. One might split the difference between revolution and counter-revolution in the Civil War, averaging the two into a kind of diagonal line of gradual national progress. Such a clean narrative of gradual national progress requires, however, overlooking an astonishing diversity of political imagination and strategic practices. I have thus studied the American Civil War as a global revolution in the Mississippi Valley, and I thank you all for listening to me.
Well, I think Andrew's given us a very different way of looking at the Civil War. Do any of you have any questions to ask Andrew? I'm Jim Lowen. I'm a sociologist. I actually had some students many years ago who studied Isaiah T. Montgomery and Mountain Bayou, and we ought to talk sometime. So, they, so I learned some stuff about Davis Bend. But you finally mentioned Du Bois, and I'm wondering, you never mentioned his theory uh, or generalization or assertion of the, what he called the Great Strike. And I wondered if you think much of it and why, if you would like to mention it. The kind of the two components of W.E.B. Du Bois' thesis of, about the Civil War is that emancipation was forced on unwilling union leadership by what he calls general strike. Of, of the black workers, yeah, and, and when he does that, one of the things he's doing is he's making very clear the connection of that to general strike movements happening around the world at the time, too, and I think he's absolutely right, and the only reason I didn't name check him earlier was just because, I mean, every historian working in this, in looking at self-emancipation is following the footsteps of W.B. Du Bois, so it's certainly very important, and I just mentioned him at the end, but I think it's, it's absolutely right, and I think, you know, I'm adding to it, adding nuance to it. I mean, Du Bois doesn't see Union soldiers as involved in the general strike or as allies, and I, I'm putting a, a differentiated account of Union soldiers, and there were radicals in the Union that did, and there were conservatives in the Union that opposed it. Yeah, I, I sure couldn't give you a source, but I recall reading years ago during the American Revolution, the estimate is that approximately one-third of all the slaves ran off when they got the chance, essentially anywhere where civil authority was disrupted, the armies had come through, things got a little loosey-goosey for a while, the slaves disappeared. And in total, about one-third of the slave property evaporated. Imagine in the context of the 1770s where they went. But do you have any similar estimates for the Civil War? Obviously, we know there were large-scale movements of refugees, contrabands coming into Union lines, but uh, have you ever seen an aggregate figure as to how many people were on the move? I don't know the number. I should know the number. I mean, I, but I, I don't know. I mean, it was, we're talking about thousands in a, in a total population. There's been a study of self-emancipated African-Americans, and the figure I've seen is around 400,000 that self-emancipated either into Union lines or all the way to the north by themselves. Out of the population of approximately three million. Three and a half million, almost four million. Uh, as a global perspective, the Anaconda Plan, the subsequent blockade, cuts the Mississippi down and cuts off America, certainly the south, from the rest of the world. The Gulf blockade, the Atlantic squadrons, America is now definitely in isolation. What would be the effect on the political changes that you had posited starting in the 50s but now completely cut off? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I never thought of the Anaconda Plan in relation to kind of nationalizing the war in that way. And, you know, it didn't cut off correspondence, for example. So, look, thinking first about the German-American communists. They were still, there were still letters going back and forth, and there's a lot of letters to Marx and Engels about military affairs. So that's not cut off by the blockade. And for enslaved African-Americans, physical international movement was already blocked off, so they wouldn't have been changed by the Anaconda Plan, but they had conjure as a form of internationalism, a way of, of engaging not just with Africa, but with the entire diaspora also in, in the Caribbean. So in a sense, these kinds of, maybe one thing you could say about these kinds of intellectual, political, even imaginative alliances is that they can't be blockaded, even by the best Anaconda Plan. My name is Rob Hemingway. Thank you very much. I'm enjoying this immensely. One of the things that's always struck me as odd about the Civil War era 
and I appreciate that you're taking a different slant, is that everyone acts like this conflict starts in 1861. You know, you've got bleeding Kansas and all these other issues. Yeah, when does the Civil War begin? You know, we get clear chronologies when we look from a very top level. But then if you think it's, this is a struggle about racism and it's about slavery um, in the United States, then when does the Civil War begin? It, you know, 1619, when the first captured Africans arrived in the United States, and when does it end? I'll look forward to the end. Because I'm writing a book about the Civil War, and I, I don't want it to become like a book about 500 years of history, although it could, I see it as beginning in 1856. Other people see this too. It's with the first Republican uh, presidential campaign. It's when Fremont's running for election. And I see Fremont more as, as a, he represents something to people. But you see a whole wave of revolutionary action conspiracies, both among enslaved people and among European Americans, both immigrants and native-born European Americans. And some of them are very excited about Fremont, and some of them don't seem to be particularly motivated by Fremont. You have waves of joining militias, both black and white, and formations of political undergrounds. Because they're underground, it's hard to tell how many exactly, but they does come up in small number of primary sources on that. So I would say one answer is 1619, the other answer is 1856. But you know, when you write history, it feels so arbitrary sometimes, but when you begin, it changes it. But definitely not April 1861. That's, then it's, it's already well into the war by then. First, thank you very much for an excellent, excellent presentation. You've opened our eyes to a whole new aspect of the war that I, for one, totally unaware of. Second, I was fascinated by your references to conjuring and conjurers. I got the impression that if a person was a conjurer, an enslaved person could come to that conjurer, and the conjurer could help them in a whole variety of ways. They had a big toolbox available to them in terms of physical help, I gather spiritual help, and magical help. Could you talk a little bit more about the toolbox? Yeah, definitely. Thank you for asking about that. It's fascinating for me to have got a chance to learn about conjurers. I was writing about the Civil War. I really discovered it kind of by accident, by studying Boonville, actually, very closely for a while. And suddenly I discovered Guinea Sam was an unusually famous conjurer. If you had to translate conjurer into European-American professions, it would be something like doctor, counselor, historian, philosopher, political organizer, pharmacist, I guess you can include that with doctor, and psychiatrist. The way I think of conjurers, I mean, I'm focusing on particular aspects of them, which is as political leaders and as intellectuals. But they were, I mean, a lot of what conjurers did was, if someone was sick, both white or black, I mean, it wasn't only for African Americans, you could go and, and get, it looks like herbal medicine. A lot of the experience would be like herbal medicine, but it could also be if you were in love with someone and wanted them to love you back or wanted to break their love affair with somebody. There was a lot of love conjure too, which I didn't talk about so much. Yet sometimes it's called hoodoo. I haven't found that as much in the sources, but later. And Lucy Broaddus, the person who talks about Guinea Sam Nightingale as freeing the slaves, I think suggests there's a broader pattern. But certainly I found at least two I can think of conjurers who are revolutionary leaders, that is, who organize cells and, and they, they administer oaths was one of the things. In fact, conjure, etymologically, it means to swear together. And one of the things that conjurers do is just, you know, they'll swear, you know, one conspiracy I know I pretty well documented is that there were cells of 12 people and they would take an oath never to reveal anything on pain of death. And then they would spread, they spread throughout, you know, from kind of Kentucky to, to Mississippi. So there's a whole variety of things. And it's really like the general purpose, people's intellectual. It's kind of the way I think about it. Thank you. Yeah, Thank sure. You. One other comment. After the Civil War, 
well, particularly after 1890 about, the whole country goes more and more racist. I wrote this book, Sundown Towns, about an aspect of that phenomenon. But one of the things that really depressed me was to find that German socialists participated in this just like most other Germans and immigrant, many immigrant groups, and in particular, Herman, Missouri, which I'm sure you have studied or will, because that's one of the centers of socialism in Missouri, uh, had a pretty big black population after the Civil War. And then, I think around 1888, maybe it was after 1890, they threw them all out and became a sundown town. And the only residue of socialism that I could find in Herman, really, was that they did admit it to me, and in fact they admitted it in writing, which is very rare. They will admit it in one-to-one -one conversation, but, uh, but this is a, a common phenomenon. So I, I don't know, I'm just saying as a comment that sometimes their excellent class analysis doesn't carry over like it should to a good race analysis, and they become just as racist as everybody else. Yeah, it's striking. I mean, there are individual Germans who remain radical after the war, and Schertz is a good example is that their radicalism made them very successful as commanders in Missouri, for example. And then that success led to a political career and then they become prominent. They become prominent men. And then they, their interests become the interests of prominent men, even though their success is based on their revolutionary background. The day before yesterday, I was reading radical German Missouri newspapers from the 1860s and I learned Heinrich Bornstein, who's that newspaper editor I talked about, Lincoln gave him an ambassadorship to the German city of Bremen, and the newspapers just rejected him, even though he was, the, he was actually the, the editor of one of them, but the radical community rejected him and said he sold out. They call him the peddler after that, and that's, that's early on. So there's also a sense, even among the German rank and file, that these prominent people are possibly selling out even then, and then later decades, I mean, yeah, it, it, it changes a lot. There's a really interesting book by a scholar named Allison Efford who argues that what ha I mean, because what happened to the radical Germans is like, you know, for a small subgroup of historians, an, inter uh, an important historiographical question. And her argument is that when Germany unified in 1871, these German-Americans saw their dreams of German national unity that had been part of the 1848 revolutions realized in this sort of conservative, top-down, Bismarck way. And they sort of like, became what she calls, what they would have called national liberals, and that that's actually what did it. And it's a, it's a persuasive argument. I mean, I think there's many factors, but that's, an, that's a good one. It's, a, it's an important book. I want to thank Andrew and all of you. I think what Andrew has shown us is that there were any number of civil wars within the Civil War. And the closer you look, the more complicated it gets. Happy Thanksgiving and a happy Hanukkah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody.